Amen. Our first reading comes from the book of Micah, 6th chapter, verses 1 through 8, and I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised. What Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Galgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before the Lord with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The Lord has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This ends our first reading. As we prepare to hear the message from Matthew's Gospel this week, I just want to pause and remind us of where we left off last week. Last week, we saw Jesus had begun calling all of his disciples and moving with them throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, healing every disease among the people. That's where we left off Today's passage picks up about four verses later and leaves off just a little bit. As you can imagine, Jesus traveling, healing all of these diseases, he got pretty popular. The crowd started gathering. They followed him all throughout Galilee, all everywhere that he traveled. Crowds from all over Israel were coming to see him. It grew so popular, the crowds grew so loud that Jesus felt a need to spend some time with his disciples. And that's where today's passage picks up. So I invite us to listen for God's word speaking to us this day from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Let us listen for God's word speaking to us today. When Jesus saw the crowd, He went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were, bef- who were before you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So imagine with me, if you will, a world where one day a week was viewed as sacred. The pews were always full for worship. Church school classes were packed. There were no youth sporting events scheduled on that day. You had to plan ahead because you could not buy booze. Everything was relatively calm. Everything was ordered and in its place. Well, everything was relatively quiet and calm and ordered for some people. Many others had to work because there wasn't enough food on the tables. So they didn't get that day. They didn't have money to pay their rent. They didn't have money to purchase the medicines they needed. They didn't have money to pay for heating or utility bills, much less the large sums of money to donate to their house of worship so that they could atone for their sins or be in the good graces of those who sat in the pews around them. Many of these people had to work in the homes of those who were in worship. They had to cook those post-worship feasts. They had to clean their homes for the post-worship supper. They had to work in the stores that were open just in case someone needed those last-minute purchases. Or... In the worst case, they were at home, tense and nervous and on edge because they knew they did not have enough to make the ends meet that week. They did not have enough to provide for their families. To compound the problem, the group who were already feeling the stress, this group who were mocked, Sorry, this group were mocked and ridiculed for not going to worship. Asking, why weren't you there? Where were you? What priorities do you have that are more important than the Lord? Or they were mocked and ridiculed for not contributing enough to the coffers of the house of worship. Mocked and ridiculed because they could not be where everyone thought they needed to be. 
to add insult to injury, these folks who were living on the margins and who were mocked and ridiculed, these children of God, were working to buy food from stores owned by those with the time to go to worship. They were working to pay rent to landlords who had the time to go to worship. They were working to buy medicines from those who had the time to go to worship. Do any of you recognize that scenario? I certainly do. Growing up, I lived in a lower-income neighborhood where everyone was stretching the last penny that they had to make ends meet. I grew up in the Bible Belt, so everyone was in church on Sundays. As I've I've previously said, my family didn't go to church. We went to the theater because that's where my dad worked. So we were odd already. But the folks in my neighborhood were all people who wanted to go to church. But their parents had to work. They were stressed trying to make ends meet. And they worked in the homes of all of those people who were at church, preparing those meals so that when they came home, they were hot and ready for those families and their guests. Right now, currently, in my full-time job at Youth Opportunities Unlimited, I work with youth whose families qualify for temporary assistance for needy families, TANF. Over 90% of the 1,400 youth that I will employ this summer in my programs will meet that criteria, which means that they have a minor in the household and that they, the youth and their families are living at 200% of the poverty level. These families that we will engage with this summer are living at the edge, stressed out and worried about how they will make ends meet, looking forward to the summer job that their kids will have because it will bring in money for rent, for food, for school supplies and clothes that they can use when they go back in the fall. These youth and their families are feeling the stress. And as someone who manages a program that uses those dollars, I see every year how, as they stretch to make ends meet, how the systems of the world are not making it any easier. In fact, I see people in power who are propagating this disparity. People in power who claim to be God-fearing Christians, if you will, regularly propose rules and changes to the regulations that are making it harder and harder for the families who benefit and who desperately need this income. Unfortunately, this disparity, this pattern of living, is nothing new. It's present today. It was present in the 80s when I was a young person. It was present eons ago when families were in Jerusalem 
struggling to make ends meet. The story of Scripture shows us again and again how God continuously sends the message that we must change, that we must develop new ways of being in communion with God and with one another. Micah 6.8 is like an elevator pitch for our faith. When Becky read it, I felt like the room just came alive, like, oh, it's one of my favorites. What does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. We all turn to the single verse because we love it. It summarizes our faith. But when we go to the single verse, we miss the larger context of Micah. And Micah doesn't pull any punches. Even though many say this is the perfect summation of our Judeo-Christian ethic, it is important to remember that it emerges from God's deep disappointment in the people. It emerges from God's deep disappointment in people who have failed to fashion the kind of just community that God envisioned. You see, Micah was called by God, to speak out against the community in Jerusalem in 8th century BCE. Because that community had strayed from God and God's intentions. Y'all, they attended synagogue. They claimed to be pious. They made their offerings. They said all of the prayers. But when the service was over, their faith stayed in the synagogue. They left it at the door as they went out into the world to act in ways that were contrary to God's intention to liberate all people from economic and political bondage. And here in Micah, the prophet asks, with what? Shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? After this question is posed, an escalating list of potential offerings is suggested that really is intended to mock the piety of Micah's audience. Shall I give burnt offerings, calves a year old, thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil, my firstborn child? Okay, just to be clear, though, the prophet was being facetious. They didn't really sacrifice children. I just want to point that out. It is important to note, though, that all of these offerings had to be purchased. People who came to the synagogue had to purchase their offerings from the synagogue or from the leaders of the synagogue in order to atone for their sins. So without money, they couldn't participate in the same way that everyone else could. Micah's point, though, is that God doesn't want these kinds of symbols of sacrifice God doesn't want them if they're not if they're going to be stripped from the context that gives them meaning. 
What I mean is God desires more than just empty words and empty gestures. God desires justice that is measured by how well the most vulnerable fare in society. God desires a loyal love. The Hebrew word there is hesed, which is loving kindness. Hesed is the word that is used when the church talks about God's relationship with the people of Israel. God wants us to act with hesed, loving kindness, deep commitment, deep kindness to those around us and to those that we don't even know. And God wants us to march with a humble walk, to move through our lives in a way that honors the earth and all of those around us. The prophet Micah is giving voice to God's deep frustration with God's people who say they are religious, who say they are great, but their definition is far from God's vision for the world. They think that being faithful and worshiping correctly, while God wants to see that the relationship that they have with the Lord is reaching through them out into the world to make a difference in the lives of those who most need it. In much the same way, though without the heavy-handed judgment, I think, Jesus is doing the same thing when he pulls away from the crowds to sit with his disciples. Jesus has been healing and teaching and the word has spread. They love him. They are clamoring for him. But Jesus needs some time. He needs some time to be with his disciples and help them to really see what matters, to teach them and instruct them in the way that things are going to be. Here in Matthew, we get to experience what we call the Beatitudes. Whenever we hear the Beatitudes, if you're like me, we are struck with their poetic beauty. And at the same time, overwhelmed by the perceived impracticality for the world in which we live. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit, when you properly translate that, has more to do with humility. So should be read, blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you. We live in a time when the blessings seem to be given to those who succeed. We live in a time when the blessings go to those who are picture-perfect and camera-ready. At least it appears that way. And those blessings are often at the expense of others. To be poor in spirit, to be peaceful, 
to be merciful, to be meek, will get you nowhere in a culture grounded in competition and fear. Just as Micah did to those in Jerusalem, here Jesus is challenging the worldview of the disciples and through them challenging our worldview, calling us to live a different way in God's world. Jesus is turning the values of the world upside down and calling us to look at everything in a different lens. Jesus is saying being faithful is not about how we worship. It is about our daily living. It is about our practice of discipleship. It is about how we treat ourselves and how we treat those around us. The Beatitudes are not commands. The tense used in Greek is not imperative. Jesus isn't saying, go and become poor in spirit. Go and become humble. Go mourn. Go hunger and thirst for righteousness. Go get persecuted. Jesus isn't commanding us to do those things. Jesus isn't saying, go do all of these things so that you can then get the blessings that come because of them. The tense that is used in Greek is the indicative. Jesus is making a statement. He's sort of lobbing an open-ended question to everybody. He's affirming the qualities that arise the qualities that arise when you embrace the grace of God that is being offered in the life and person of Jesus Christ. When the grace of God in Christ Jesus transforms our hearts, we move in the world with humility. And remember, back to December from my sermon about Joseph, Jesus and the disciples, all of those at this time, were Jewish They were shaped by their Jewish understandings of humility, which, if you remember, the word was anava. Anava is not a humility that assumes that you have to make yourself really small. Anava asks you to understand and appreciate what is your God-given role in this time and in this place in each and every situation. When to step forward and when to hold back and allow space for others. When to advocate for yourself, when to advocate for others, and when to reflect and ask yourself, how did I participate in this mess that is happening right now? When we experience God's grace, We move with anava. We move with humility in the world. And because of that, we are blessed because we are actively creating the kingdom of heaven for ourselves and for others in the world. When we experience God's grace, we will mourn. We will mourn because of the brokenness that we now see is so evident in the world. We will recognize where the world is not how God intends 
And that will cause us pain. Today, we mourn for the family of Tyree Nichols in the city of Memphis for the brokenness that is so present in that city and in that family, in the family of that young man. We mourn because it is not the world that God intends. But friends, our mourning leads us into community. It leads us into community because we have to gather trusting that God's grace is bigger. And in that moment, we experience comfort because we know we are not alone. We are not alone in seeing the brokenness around us. And we're then empowered to go and make a difference. This morning should lead us, people shaped by Anava, people shaped by the humility to hunger and thirst for righteousness because we recognize that the blessings of God are for us and for all people. And that leads us to act because we want people to experience that grace present in their lives. We want something more for this world and God's people who live in it. But friends, our actions will then surely lead to persecution of varying degrees. Maybe we'll be ostracized. Maybe we'll get funny looks. Maybe worse. Because as we challenge the status quo, as we challenge the way things are, people will respond because we are working to turn the world on its head, to see and live in the world the way Jesus taught his disciples to. As we experience God's grace, the blessings will flow because we will recognize that we have been blessed to be a blessing. We have seen how much God loves this world, how much God loves us. We have experienced that moment when God looks at us and says, Child, in you I am well pleased. For you are beautifully and wonderfully made. And the grace of that moment will fill us, and we want that for all people. And we won't be able to resist responding in ways that help usher in God's justice. We won't be able to help ourselves but respond with hesed with God's loving kindness to all people that we encounter. So friends, what does the Lord require of you? In the brokenness of this world, in the blessings of this world, what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God so that people may experience the presence of God in their lives. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly in the spirit of Anava, 
Know your place in the world and advocate that others find theirs. May it be so. Amen.